Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. of the Epiphany hymn, The Only Son from Heaven. O Lord, our hearts awaken to know and love you more. In the Gospel reading for this coming Sunday in John chapter 1, there is Philip. He has a message for his relative Nathaniel. He says, We have found the one of whom Moses and the law spoke, Jesus of Nazareth. He's come to know Jesus, and so will Nathaniel in time. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the second Sunday after the Epiphany, with that gospel reading of Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. Pastor Sean Denzer will be our guest. We'll go through listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. Then it's part two of our conversation with Ted Kober co-author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for January, Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. We'll talk about forgiveness and unforgiveness. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. Introduce us to the Epiphany season. Well, Epiphany means revelation or manifestation, and the season of Epiphany is kind of continuing Christmas in a way, trying to focus on the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, and maybe that's the first thing we really want to focus on at Christmas time, his, his incarnation and his birth in particular, but now that he actually is going to be disclosing his divine character to others. So traditionally, this is uh, through his miracles especially. We'll get to some of those as we go on, but to start with, we're going to see his revelation to the disciples in the calling of the 12 disciples. So we'll have a few today and next week, and then we'll break into the rest of Mark's gospel, which begins with many healings and signs and wonders that Jesus is doing. So all at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas, of course, his teaching increases and also his opposition to his ministry increases until finally he goes to the cross, as is his desire from the beginning. You wanted to give us a little overview on the two callings that we have in this coming Sunday. 
Yeah, maybe as a way of connecting our theme together, we'll see that the epistle really is quite separate. We're back to uh, continuous reading through an epistle. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, kind of jumping right into the middle of it. But that definitely highlights all the more how much the Old Testament and the gospel reading are chosen to match one another and comment on one another. So we have two characters. We have Samuel in the Old Testament, and we have Nathaniel in the New Testament. You can hear that both of their names end with El, which is the Hebrew word for God. So their names really are quite similar. Samuel means his name is God. You might be familiar with the word Shema from Hero Israel, the Lord is one. It does sound very similar to that. And in fact, that's what Hannah, his mother, said when she named him, that the Lord has heard me. I have been heard by God all connected with Samuel, her miraculous son, who was born to her after she was barren. Nathaniel is very similar. It means gift of God, given by God. So he too, we don't know his birth circumstances, but both of these gentlemen are uh, gifts of God and their names reflect that. Now, Samuel in the temple was dedicated uh, as a Nazarite for service. So he was going to be an assistant to Eli, the priest and the prophet there working in the temple. And then he also in time would become a great prophet of the Lord. In fact, one of the greatest after the Lord calls him. There's uh, something of a connection there also with our gospel reading uh, because, of course, Nathaniel comes or when Philip tells him about Jesus, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Matthew's gospel draws on that name Nazareth, the town from where Jesus comes, uh, also drawing on the Old Testament, this play on words between Nazarite and Nazarene. Uh, that Jesus would be unique in this way, that some prophecy was being fulfilled. And that prophecy is kind of difficult to find since it never says that the Messiah is supposed to take any Nazarite vows. We don't even know that Jesus did that in particular in the course of his ministry, although he certainly might have if it's not recorded for us. Some have seen a connection, especially to him being the branch, uh, as we heard frequently throughout Advent, that he is the branch of Jesse's tree come to redeem us. So not immediately clear to us, but what is clear is that Jesus is revealed to Nathanael and Nathanael doesn't shrink away from him, but he answers the call to say the least, just as Samuel did. And he declares that this Lord is great and he identifies who he is. Thus, this whole sight that we're going to see today, just as it was for Samuel, is a manifestation of God himself speaking to his people. What are the connecting themes in this coming Sunday's Proppers? We'll see that the Lord sees right into the heart. So in both cases, uh, we see the Lord coming to them, speaking to them, addressing them, calling them to follow him, calling us by extension to follow him as well. But we see especially that the Lord knows us. That's such a rich term throughout the scripture that the Lord has knowledge of us. uh, And that word means many things. But for us, it's the most intimate and deep knowledge that is a relationship that is built with him through faith in him. Uh, That he knows who we are. He's the creator of the world. Certainly that reveals something about his power. But he knows us as one who loves us and cares for us and has come to redeem us and save us. This is the joyous part that his purpose is not only to know us and to punish us, but in fact to heal us, to save us, as we see unfolded in the rest of the Epiphany season. 
It's not just tenderness. It's not just a relationship, but it's for that salvation. He answers us, as we'll see in our gospel. He even opens heaven up to us and makes an access to it by himself. So he is the Lord of Jacob. He is the very gate to God. He is the Bethel the place where Jacob had that vision of the ladder. That also would be a fine Old Testament pairing uh, for this day as well, as we look at what Nathaniel says about Jesus and then what Jesus says, much greater things are to come. Stick with me. Take us into the intro for this coming Sunday. The intro is drawn from Psalm 40. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So our antiphon, which comes from verse 10, says, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, but I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I think we hear the voice of Philip here. He's saved by God. He acknowledges the Messiah, but now he's not going to hide that. He's going to call his buddy Nathaniel to come also and to join, just as Andrew did with St. Peter in a verse before our gospel today. Now, the rest of Psalm 40 is a great psalm of faith. It recalls the Lord's rescue in the past for the psalmist, pulling him out of the depths, out of some kind of trouble, but also proclaiming his deeds, which are multiplied, which could not be told of satisfactorily. That's kind of the way John ends his gospel. We could have ran out of paper if we wanted to record everything that Jesus has done. And yet that doesn't stop John from writing what he does, just as it doesn't stop the psalmist and Philip and Nathaniel of speaking of what they have heard. In fact, of speaking in particular about what is most needful. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing him, you'll have life in his name. So the psalmist urges us to put all our trust also in Christ Jesus. Exactly that exchange we're going to see in the gospel with Philip bringing Nathaniel to Jesus. Nathaniel, by the way, begins, it seems, not trusting in Christ or in some way having made a comment that he's going to be forever remembered for what good could come from Nazareth. And we see actually that the salvation of the world comes from Nazareth, so to speak. But he's moved from that questioning to faith, not only in faith in a miraculous divine messenger here when he meets Jesus, but also to the heart of Israel's faith. He's moved to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the one for whom they're waiting, as the king of Israel. And in fact, then the Lord will reveal himself as the ladder who leads up to God, the very same one that Jacob saw in his vision of that ladder leading up to heaven. Christ will reveal himself to Nathanael as well. And so Nathaniel becomes one of these who also does not hide the Lord's deliverance and salvation, but confesses it, proclaims it. We also want to always attest to the Lord's epiphany among us. Take us into the collect. 
Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. This was originally paired with the wedding at Cana. Here we don't see a miracle of Christ governing, turning water into wine, but we do have some hint of the Lord's great majesty and power over this world. He says to Nathaniel that he saw him under the fig tree, and it doesn't seem like he was spying on him, but it's the fact that the Lord knows all things. He's the Lord not only of this world and its stuff, but he's also the Lord of heart and mind. Therefore, we have the omniscience of God in front of us, not so much his omnipotence, but Christ is demonstrating that divine characteristic even now as a man. That's part of his epiphany. And he is the king. He's the one who hears us. That's what we say in this collect. Not only does he govern all the things, but he actually is merciful to hear his people. He's not a king that's far off and distant. He's a king that is ready to attend to us. He's willing to give us an audience. And how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a glimpse into that fantastic thing that Jesus says, that you'll see the Son of Man, the angels descending and ascending upon him, that he is the very gate of heaven, like Jacob saw with his ladder. It also says that we ask that he would grant us peace through all our days or peace in our times. That's what that means. And that means peace for every time. I think this is especially helpful for us just a couple Sundays after Christmas, after Epiphany, after the big high festival season that we've just come through. The Lord's peace is not just a Christmas time nostalgia that quickly fades away. The Lord's peace continues. He's come to give us peace that lasts forever, even into eternal life. So that's exactly what we continue to pray for, that just as he is governing all things, we ask that he would govern them for our good. If you want to borrow from the small catechism, I think that'd be appropriate here, an echo of this prayer. We know that he's the king who gives peace to all people, but we ask that he would bring it also among us as well. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. The Old Testament reading in 1 Samuel, the call of Samuel, is next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense 
and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the second Sunday after the Epiphany with Pastor Sean Denzer. Sean, you had mentioned earlier the Old Testament reading, 1 Samuel 3, beginning at verse 1, and you can run either through 10 or 20. Yes, this is the call of Samuel. So we start off, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. If we continue on, then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all he has told you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So the backstory is not given to us. Hopefully you remember it. Hannah, his mother, was barren. She was one of two wives of her husband, and she was the despised one, of course, not having any children. So she prayed for the Lord's mercy constantly in the temple. And Eli was actually the priest, and he misjudged her and thought she was drunk. But the Lord saw that she was actually the pious and devout one, actually between the two of them, as we find out here. And when Samuel was born, she dedicated him to service to the Lord. All of that is kind of caught here at the beginning when the scene's laid out for us. It mentions that Eli's eyes are dim, but also that that matches the dimness of the Lord's light among his people at this time. And all of this is foreshadowing the disaster that's going to strike Eli at the end of his life when the ark is taken away, when it's misused, and then the Lord goes off and does it himself because he has no need of these Israelites who have such dim faith in him. Also, all the disaster that befalls Eli's sons. To act as if the Lord is not there, but to carry on with all the motions is an abomination to the Lord. And one of the things the prophets rail most against. And so maybe that's some character of the way things were at the time when the Lord, Jesus, also comes in the flesh to his own people, and yet they don't receive him. Well, the response of Eli here each time makes sense. He just wants to go to bed. But when finally he understands that this is the Lord calling Samuel, that, by the way, is what it means that Samuel doesn't know the Lord, is that he's not yet been called to be a prophet speaking for the Lord and standing in his counsel. When Eli recognizes this, you see that he gives an answer. It's kind of perfunctory, though. He knows it. Perhaps even he believes it. But there's no fire. There's no zeal. There's no piety or fervor behind it. And Samuel, of course, shows himself extremely energetic as a young man, zealous, all the more in contrast to Eli's kind of worn out attitude. This is not a favorable word of the Lord that comes to him as a result. It's punishment for Eli and for his house specifically. He does give his amen to it, we see, which I think maybe gives us some hint that his faith is not gone utterly, but certainly his sons have no atonement made for them. Eli recognizes that as he's tipping over backwards and falling to his death, that the glory of the Lord has now departed from Israel. So he certainly recognizes what is going on, but it is his inaction, his lack of fervor and piety that is judged by the Lord here, which Samuel, of course, comes with all of the piety uh, that is a characteristic of youth. And who then is Samuel, who's raised up, who the Lord knew even before he knew the Lord? He's going to be the last of the judges. He's going to be one of the most important prophets. And he's also going to be the one who gets to anoint Saul and David as king. He's a monumental figure. That's what it means at the end when it says that God didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. They don't drop uselessly. He's one of the greatest prophets and probably the greatest prophet that we've seen up to this time. I would say, if I were an Israelite in his day, he's a contender for that promise that we've referenced so often already this year of the prophet that Moses spoke about, the one whom the Lord will put his words in his mouth and we have to listen to him or God's going to require it of our hand. 
Samuel certainly would be one, a contender for that office. But of course, he's not yet the true fulfillment. We'll have to wait for our gospel reading to see who that is. The psalm is 139, the first 10 verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Well, the Lord's discernment goes beyond just actions and fame. God knows all. I suppose he wouldn't be much of a God if he didn't, except that's exactly the way man-made gods always seem to be in this world, and the way demons are. They don't know these things in the way that the Lord does. He knows all intimately. He's the one who created this whole world. He's the one who sustains this whole world. He's this world's judge. As it says in the scriptures, sometimes he's a God who is at hand, and yet a God who is invisible. He's not made of stone. And he is a God far off, not in the sense that he doesn't hear the report of the news because he's off doing other things, but he is in the heavens. He is ruling over all things. As Psalm 2 says, he, he looks down on the children of men and he laughs them to derision. But note what this psalm concludes with, or at least in verse 10. This might be a terror to those who are indifferent or hostile to God. Even the psalmist admits this knowledge is, is far beyond me, and even to think of it kind of makes me dizzy. But it's a joy, finally, to the psalmist. It's a pleasure for those who hear him gladly and who know that they need rescue. It's a very common expression among people that God has a reason for everything. That's not a false statement but it's an incomplete statement. It's not good news yet to hear that God has a plan for everything. Think about what we just heard his word was to Eli. That is not a good thing for Eli, but to hear that he has a good plan for us according to his word in Christ Jesus, there it is. That's this kind of uh, what we see here, that his hand actually is trying to lead us and his right hand is going to uphold us. This is the gospel, not just that he rules everything, that he's almighty, but that he does it for us, that he is our teacher and our guide. And this is the spirit in which Samuel receives the word from God and becomes his servant. It's also the spirit in which Nathaniel comes to call Jesus rabbi, teacher, how he follows him also just as Philip had been and Andrew and Simon, but now how he also confesses him as the very Lord and the King of Israel in whom all our trust can be placed. Thus, if the Lord knows him, maybe that was a shocking thing for him to find out that he saw him under the fig tree, but what is far more important is to see that the Lord will lead him and guide him and be his redeemer. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. LCMS Worship invites you to the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music July 9th through the 12th, 
at Concordia University, Nebraska. The theme is Psalms of Deliverance. Learn more at lcms.org slash worship institute, lcms.org slash worship institute. When we come back, we're in 1 Corinthians 6 with the epistle. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. You're listening to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Sean, for the epistle, we continue reading through 1 Corinthians. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been here, and this is the beginning of our section through the end of the Epiphany season. Since we're kind of jumping in the middle of 1 Corinthians, that's tricky for one reason, but also this text really does not connect very well with the other themes of our day even though it's a very important instruction from Paul. So I would not be surprised for the listener if this were the basis of a sermon. Just don't expect it to necessarily be tied in too much with Nathaniel or with Samuel. Here's the text beginning at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality, then. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the first thing to say is that as many scholars have recognized, Paul seems to be quoting something here that is written to him, and then he's commenting on it. And your Bible may have quotation marks to try and help explain that. So his response is to this phrase that he repeats twice, all things are lawful for me, but then he tempers that. He doesn't actually negate that. There's a way in which that's true. The law of God now has been fulfilled by Christ Jesus and Consider just the food laws alone, Jesus has declared all foods to be clean. Those aren't the things that defile the body. It's what comes out of our hearts, our sins, that defile a person. But Paul still says we're to make use of our bodies and all of the things that go with them for the sake of confessing truthfully Christ Jesus and not in a way that will scandalize our neighbor, as Paul talks about many other places as well. So he tempers that with love and purpose. Yes, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want pressed into the service of Christ's purposes and for the sake of love for my neighbor. That's how it ought to be. What is edifying is to be done. Whatever does not quickly become a new slave master like the old law of God and even the elementary principles of this world always are tempting us to become their slaves as if by ascetic or rigorous keeping of rules, we will merit our way into eternal life. So he goes on, he has a quick reference to food or to meat, and that's probably another summary statement or quotation that he is uh, responding to. Hey, that's what the stomach is for. That's what food is for, for eating. This is how go for it, right? But rather he's speaking about the ability of a Christian actually to temper their own actions for the sake of others. Both of these things, he says, fall under judgment. The food is going to be burned up. Guess what? Your stomach is going to be burned up too at the last day, right? The Lord is going to destroy all these things. And unless they are redeemed by the word of God, you can expect to go into everlasting fire. The lasting things are the word of God. The lasting things is the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. That's then what we're to live and trust in, and we're supposed to lead our lives as those who are wholly joined to him. He goes on then into the part that I think is probably most familiar to us to speak about our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit and therefore how they ought to be used, especially as it regards the sixth commandment. Paul is saying that we are not Gnostics. We are not people who say the body doesn't matter. We're not Epicureans, people who say, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You do whatever you want with your body because all that matters is our souls will be with God forever. That's who I really am, is who I am inside. And the things I do or say or whatever I do to myself, that doesn't matter. Paul, Paul fights against that. He gives two reasons why Christians care deeply about the body, and I think we should pay attention to both of them. The first thing is that our bodies have become members of Christ. What he means is members like parts of the body, hands and feet. Christ is described often by Paul as the head 
and we then are his members, the rest of it that makes up his body. So if he is holy, if our head is holy, we also are to be holy. We're one spirit with him, he says. We're joined to Christ Jesus, and it's hard not to think of holy baptism from this past Sunday as the means by which we are connected with him. That means that we have his name on us. We can't take part in other names. We can't be joined to other gods. We can't commit idolatry. And adultery is always close behind it as a way of joining ourselves to someone who is not the person we're devoted to, not our spouse, or in this case, not our God. The second reason that our bodies matter is the resurrection. Christ is risen from the dead, and his resurrection wasn't a leaving behind of his human body. Thank goodness that's over. Now Jesus says, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to escape my body and stop being incarnate. No, Jesus doesn't say that at all. In fact, he even tells Mary at the end of the gospel, don't cling to me now because I need to ascend. That's not just in spirit, but in body as well to the right hand of my father and your father now. So Christ has been raised from the dead, body and soul all together. So also he is going to raise us at the last day, just as he is risen from the dead. So that tells us that he has need of our bodies yet, and he's going to put them to good use. We then don't despise these bodies or treat them like they don't matter. I think we hear that sometimes uh, expressed when people say, hey, once I die, it doesn't matter what you do to my body. Maybe they're using that as a reason to say, I want to be buried in this or that way. That reasoning is not correct. Our bodies do matter. The Lord's going to raise them up at the last day. Yes, of course, from whatever condition they're in. Now he speaks about, hey, we're not going to unite these bodies of ours, these Christian people, to a prostitute. Now, it might be tempting to say this is only speaking about religion. We know very well that the Greek-speaking and practicing peoples of those days often had cult prostitution, where you would go to the temple and do this business. And this was connected to the spiritual. It wasn't just an act of recreation, I guess you could say. We might be tempted to say, well, okay, this is a spiritual practice and that's all it's speaking about. But I think two things in particular, Paul says, point to the fact that we're right to apply this to all immorality. In short, anything that is not faithfulness in body and in heart to your wife or your husband. The first is that he goes right back to Genesis. He goes to that phrase, the two become one flesh. This is part of the defining of what marriage is as God has instituted it and how the body is to be used properly, that two is the number of people who are part of a marriage. Two are to become one and they're to cleave to one another. They're to remain faithful to one another as long as they both shall live. And the second thing that he says is that he expands on this beyond just temple prostitution to speak about the way we use our bodies and to say that we should flee every kind of sexual immorality altogether. In fact, he goes on to explain something that might be important for us to hear, which is the greater danger and damage that these sins hold for us. So it's well known that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as James says that in the law, those who are guilty of one part of it are also guilty of violating all of it. And in this sense, all of us stands equal before God 
We all are sinners. And so from that perspective, it's kind of silly to maybe chalk up our sins next to each other and do a comparison, as Jesus says, to pick the speck out of our brother's eye when we ourselves might have a log. All sins are damnable and worthy of condemnation before God. That is not to say that all sins are the same or fade into kind of general equivocation. And Paul says that quite clearly here. There's something worse about sexual sin. And the something is named. The something is that actually we are sinning against our own body. So I suppose if you steal, who's the person who's been defrauded? That person is the one who, whose car got stolen by you. But to engage in sexual immorality is to not only sin against maybe that person, not maybe to sin against a wife that either you have now and you're cheating on or a wife that you do not have yet who you're not remaining faithful to, but it actually robs from ourselves as well. It defiles who we are. It joins us to something that is unholy to a person who's not our spouse. And that can't be. Then he introduces, I think, really the the foundational thing. And I I find this to be one of the most useful phrases. It's a takeaway that we know very well, that we've heard many times, and is easy to kind of reconstruct. And it is the simple phrase that our bodies as Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful image and good for teaching. Beautiful. He says that, in fact, our bodies are not our own because they were purchased. They were bought with a price. He doesn't name the price here, but we know it well. It's the price of the son of God's death, his blood. And that's exactly what Paul said to the teachers at Ephesus in Acts 20. He said, the congregation of God has been purchased by his own blood. The blood of God has bought us. That's how important we are to him. Therefore, we are to be used for his purposes, so to speak. But Paul, by calling us temples, makes this much greater. It's not just a matter of you're a slave and and Christ has bought you, so he gets to decide what you're going to be doing. It's not even just sons, which is far better than that, that we're the inheritors of all of his goodness and people that he loves, but in fact that we are also priests and holy places of God set apart for his purposes, made sacred by his presence and continuing presence in the Holy Spirit within us. And therefore, we're not to be defiled by all of this, but the Lord wants us to remain holy as he is holy. With our bodies, then, not only with our hearts and minds, we are to honor him and glorify him. And I think that might be one connection that could be made to Nathaniel in particular, but also to Samuel. Yes, God sees deep into our hearts. He knows us even before we know him. He sees into our minds and knows what we're thinking. That doesn't mean, though, that all that matters is the intention, all that matters is the thought, or that our bodies are separate from our life and unimportant. We confess with our lips, we confess with our lives, and we do it with our actions, as well as with the thoughts that become words and promises that we speak. And all of that is bound up here in what Paul speaks about the way a Christian uses his body as a temple of God. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We will get into the gradual and the verse and that gospel reading in John chapter 1 next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast Christ's net on the internet. 
Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. You're personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating under the theme, Just As I Am, January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. For additional information, visit lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Sean Denzer is leading us through the propers for this coming Sunday as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the three electionary. Sean, what are the gradual and verse? Well, the temples are admonished to bring an offering and enter into his courts again. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, because great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. This ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name, we see in Samuel in particular, but also in Nathaniel. Nathaniel names him as the true Messiah and the real king of Israel. He is extolling him. And we begin in Galilee of the Gentiles. So we have just the beginnings of the hints of the preaching of Christ, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Which brings us to the verse, which really does tie together the answer of Samuel, speak, your servant listens, and the compliment that Jesus gives to Nathanael, you are an Israelite without any guile. But clearly this verse from Isaiah 49, verse 3, is directed not at any of these particular Israelites, but at Jesus, the true Israel of God, the true Messiah of God. And he says, you are my servant, Israel, the one in whom I will be glorified. Christ is that servant. He's the true Israel, the one who God is glorified in. And this glorification word is a perfect epiphany-themed connection. 
This is what Jesus hints at when he says, Nathaniel, stick around. You're going to see even greater things yet. You'll see the great thing when the Son of Man is glorified on his cross in particular. We come then to that gospel reading in John 1, 43 through 51. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Well, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, we kind of have all the backstory we need here. If we were to read just the verses right before this, we'd see that Andrew had just came and gotten Peter and brought him to see Jesus and to follow him also. And we have the same sort of leader bringing his friend along with him here with Philip, who is called to follow Jesus and immediately gets his buddy Nathaniel also. Now note, Nathaniel might be a confusing apostle for some because he's mentioned here in John's gospel, but not mentioned elsewhere. He's usually identified with Bartholomew that they have uh, those names both apply to the same person. It says later in John's gospel that Nathaniel was from Cana, and perhaps that's why we hear this gospel reading today, uh, substitute for the wedding at Cana that uh, we will get to hear next year on the second Sunday after Epiphany. But there are many rich Old Testament connections behind all of this, and it's kind of like a game, I think, to try and figure out where they are. The first thing is there's so much emphasis on seeing that the Lord recognized and saw Nathaniel even before Nathaniel knew him. In fact, he, he said, I can't imagine that the Messiah would possibly come from Nazareth. That could be related to the name Israel itself, which means the Lord sees or the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide as he did on the mountain. But especially this phrase of the confession of Nathaniel, when he calls him rabbi, not always a favorable word, but I think what follows it shows that it's spoken genuinely as one who's following Jesus. You are the son of God. That's pretty blunt and pretty direct. And you are the king of Israel. This is a fantastic statement that's made. King of Israel is very common. Obviously, David was a king of Israel. Samuel was the one who anointed him. But it's also a phrase that is applied to the Lord himself in two places. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, but especially in Zephaniah 3, 15, that the king of Israel is the Lord coming to the remnant of his people. Now, note, Samuel warns his people that they're not to go down the road of calling a king of Israel that would be a mere man. That was a big part of his battle with the people of Israel. 
he was the last judge, and the judges were the way that the Lord remained the true king of Israel. They wanted their own king like all the rest of the nations had. And finally, the Lord is the one who had to tell Samuel, give it up. You've lost this round. Uh, give them what they want, but make sure that you do your word, your duty, and warn them about what will happen and call them to repentance. Nathaniel is part of the remnant that is actually spoken about just before that reference to the king of Israel, who is our Lord, in Zephaniah 3.13. He says that in the last days, uh, the days when the Lord is no longer angry with his people and he comes to redeem them, there will be a humble and lowly people. There will be those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who have no deceitful tongue in their mouth. And uh, it seems that uh, this is what uh, the Lord is saying of Nathaniel. You are among this remnant, the one who recognizes, who has faith in me. That's why he says, you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile, no trickery. And that's a little bit funny as well, since the name Israel means he strives with the Lord and has prevailed in some ways, Jacob, his very name means deceit. Thus, the beautiful thing that the Lord brings about those who have no deceit in their mouths when his Messiah comes. All right. Now, the real tricky part is, what does it mean that the Lord saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, that thing that caused him to believe, at which the Lord says, let's brush that aside. You're going to see much greater things and reason to believe in me as the Messiah. Boy, I don't know. I got to be honest. Jesus seems to know something that we don't, and Nathaniel recognizes that the Lord is behind that knowledge. Some have said that maybe it was some kind of trouble and difficulty in Nathaniel's life, something he had prayed about that the Lord now answered. And he says, I know you. I've answered your prayer. I'm going to answer it again. Or maybe it was a sin. The Lord saw him doing something under a fig tree, maybe related to our epistle. Thus, he is known by the Lord in the same way that that woman at the well is. He told me all that I ever did, and most of it wasn't particularly kind. I'm not sure what it means, and I'm not sure that it's all that important since Jesus says, look, there are greater things. This is hardly a reason to believe in me as the Son of God. You're going to see much greater things and things that have a greater purpose that you would see me as the one who brings about eternal life, the one who opens up heaven, the one who is, in fact, Jacob's ladder. If you remember that story, the vision that Jacob sees at Bethel when he laid down his head on the rock is that there were angels coming up and down this ladder that stretches from the earth to heaven. Jesus now says, I am the ladder. I'm the one that the angels will be coming up and down on, descending up and down on the Son of Man. And we might even say that the whole gap between heaven and earth has obviously been bridged since here this Son of Man, this here this eternal Lord, the King of Israel, is present in the flesh among us. That's the one that Nathaniel calls out, identifies here, promises to follow, and the Lord says, come along, you're going to see the great things that I have in store, chiefly salvation for the world. What would you say briefly of the him of the day, the only son from heaven. I'll say something about it in a second. First of all, I would just love to recommend it would be a perfect day to sing as a opening hymn 
589. Speak, O Lord, your servant listens, obviously drawing from our Old Testament reading, but especially pertinent, it's a hymn that prays that the word of God would do its work in us, and that is to lead us to be a disciple of Jesus, just as Nathaniel is, and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hymn 402 in LSB, The Only Son from Heaven, is uh, written by a female author, a female hymn writer, and is still one of the greatest epiphany hymns in my mind. This hymn confesses that Christ has come in the flesh, that God himself is now among us as man, that nothing constrains or hides the fact that the Lord is manifesting himself for our salvation. In particularly beautiful is the second to last stanza, which our translation is good, it could be even better if it was a little more literal. The way it has it in the German is, kill us with your goodness, O Lord, and raise us by your grace. It's speaking about the law and the gospel's work in us, that it would convict us of sin and call us to repentance, but also that it would enliven us with all of the light of Christ Jesus that comes from the forgiveness of sins. And I think that's a fantastic way to speak about all of this knowledge of the Lord, all of the heavy things we heard also in the epistle that may prick our conscience. This is a good thing when the Lord calls us to repentance, when he exposes our sin, but when he leads us to call out for him, for his mercy that is present in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And the hymn wraps up with a, a beautiful quotation from the Sanctus that we sing all the time. Before this child, before this man on earth, before Jesus the Christ, we bow just as the angels have and do before the very throne of God in heaven, because it's the very same Lord that we behold in Revelation. And we cry, holy, 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 here is the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you very much. Blessed Epiphany. On the other side of the break, we'll go through listener email, the issues, etc., comment line. Then part two of our conversation on forgiveness and unforgiveness with Dr. Ted Coburn. Keeping the message straight, getting the message out. You're listening to Issues Etc.